This is episode number six of the Individual One podcast. I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and are distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the brand new bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because... Well, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal media, they've lost their minds. They can't be objective. And the conservative, I now refer to them as state-run media, have been completely compromised and co-opted. We, however, at the Individual One podcast, have most definitely not been co-opted. We hope you enjoyed the first five episodes of the show. We've gotten great feedback so far. Please subscribe to the show, rate, review it. Share it via social media. We have over uh, 6,000 Twitter followers already at our Twitter handle, which is Individual One. That's Individual, the number one pod, Individual One Pod. So make sure you follow us there on Twitter. And uh, and so far, so good. I hope you're enjoying this, and uh, I'm enjoying it. Lots always to talk about, as is the case in episode number six. Before we get to episode number six, which will focus on the real truth about Donald Trump's fake news. That'll be the theme. I want to give a quick update on our previous two episodes, episode number four and episode number five. In episode number four, I focused on how the conservative media became so unbelievably and dangerously invested in Donald Trump. Boy, that escalated quickly. The reality is that that whole story, I really only touched the surface of. That's, an, that's worthy of a book and certainly future episodes of the Individual One podcast. But one of the premises of episode number four and the conservative media becoming so invested in Trump is the idea that now anything that's negative to Trump in any way automatically gets disregarded and at best is quickly reported and then forgotten. Because we live in an era where what is really important is not what gets reported, it's what gets repeated. And that gives inherent plausible deniability to any news outlet because they can always say, well, we, we did report it. It was, you know, Saturday morning on our website on, at the bottom of the page, but we did report it. And therefore, they can never be really held accountable for ignoring a story. Now, I have experienced this personally because, effectively, I have been kicked out of the right-wing conspiracy. I also left it voluntarily because I was so disgusted. Uh, part of that being my, my experience in commercial talk radio. But what is interesting is that because I am now persona non grata, how I get treated by the conservative media is often very emblematic of this overall rule regarding Trump, to which I'm referring and what I talked about in episode number four. And why I'm talking about that now is over the last few days or last week, really, we've seen an exception to this that proves the rule of which I'm speaking. I'm talking about the issue involving what appears to be, uh, for all intents and purposes, a fake hate crime here uh, in the United States, where an actor by the name of Jesse Smollett, who stars in a television show on the Fox network uh, called Empire, faked a hate crime a couple of weeks ago in Chicago. Now, the reason why this relates to me and to Donald Trump is that despite the fact that this got a lot of publicity because the actor Smollett claimed that it was Trump supporters who attacked him at 2 a.m. in the middle of a polar vortex in Chicago under circumstances that were obviously dubious right from the beginning, 
This was seen as an attack on Trump supporters for being racist and homophobic because Smollett is black and gay. Now, I immediately saw all the signs, like a lot of other people did, that this story is bullcrap. But what made me different was, one, I have somewhat of a national platform through my column at Mediaite, uh, which focuses on media issues. And two, I don't care about being attacked because <laughs> I've been attacked so often in my career. You know, Winston Churchill once said the greatest exhilaration a man can experience is being shot without result. Well, I've been shot so many times and I'm still standing that it really has no impact on me. So I have no fear. I have no fear of the Twitter mob. I have no fear of being disliked because I don't really like human beings that much. So therefore, that frees me up to not really care about what people think of me. And so when I see a story that's obviously bullcrap, I am far, far more likely than anybody else in the quote-unquote national news media, uh, although I'm not sure I consider myself to be part of the national news media, but some people do, to, to be able to call it out. And I called it out more quickly, sooner, and more emphatically than anybody else did. Now, what was interesting about this is that uh, this started to get traction once the story started to fall apart. And over the last few days, it has completely fallen apart. And it turns out I was 100 percent uh, vindicated. I was 100 percent right, although my theory of it was a little bit off, as was the police's theory of it. I, I did not believe this was a full on orchestrated conspiracy hoax, but that's apparently what, in fact, it was. But here's the interesting part. So in, in episode number four, I talked a lot about how uh, some of these uh, formerly anti-Trump conservatives have been forced because of commercial pressures to be much more favorable to Donald Trump. And one of the people I referred to was Glenn Beck. Now, Glenn Beck, I, I hesitantly put into this category because, one, I consider Glenn a friend and he's been very nice to me at times. He's had me on to talk about stories that no one else had the guts to talk about. And I also understand his commercial pressure is probably better than anybody else. He has a lot of people who are relying on him for their livelihoods uh, because he runs the blaze and now they've merged. Uh, and, and so I have tried to cut Glenn Beck as much slack as possible. Plus, you know, using the Trump rule when someone says something nice about you. Uh, John Ziegler, I, I think he's fantastic. What a, what a trysting mind he has. That, you know, that even with me, that buys some currency. I have to acknowledge that when you say nice things about somebody, I'm not like Trump, where that's the only thing that matters. In Trump's world, the only thing that matters is if someone says something nice about you, even if they're Kim Jong-un, they're automatically a good person or Vladimir Putin or whatever, especially if they're a tyrant, then they're a particularly good person in, in, in the Trump equation. So I have been disappointed with the way that Glenn has gone what I perceive to be in a, in a rather strongly pro-Trump direction. And so when this Jesse Smollett thing happened, I had uh, emailed him one of my articles and I said, hey, keep an eye on this because I think this is a hoax or a fraud. And he didn't even respond, which I thought, OK, wow, am I really have I gone to, to, to being that much of a non-person with Glenn because I'm an anti-Trump conservative and now he, you know, he can't even be seen as being friendly publicly with somebody of, of my persuasion. I had no proof of this. This was just the way I was interpreting it. And I even referenced it in episode number four of this podcast. Well, lo and behold, as the, the Smollett story starts to blow apart, Glenn had me on his show not once but twice uh, uh, in the last week. 
and was exceedingly complimentary uh, of the work that I had done on this, frankly, more complimentary than I deserved, because all I did was I was just a kid in the uh, emperor has no clothes story where I'm going, wait a minute, this, <laughs> there's no clothes here. Well, why won't we admit that there's no clothes to this story? This is an obvious fraud. And as I've gone back and watched the tapes, because it's both radio and television that, that, where Glenn uh, does his show, it's a simulcast, uh, it's very clear to me, reading between the lines the way I know Glenn, Glenn is, it's obvious, is very conflicted about the situation he's in regarding Trump. This is not a conversation I've had with Glenn. This is my interpretation, knowing him a little bit, having dealt with him, having interviewed him, having him interviewed me many times. Uh, we've had uh, off-air communication. And, and I, I feel for Glenn. I, I really do. He is in an exceedingly tough spot. And I, I think that uh, he made it very clear in those two appearances that I made that uh, that he is conflicted and has, I, I believe, at least some uh, at least respect, if not admiration for people like me who are in a position where we don't have to sell out at all in order to keep our gigs. And in his position, it's not just his gig. It's a lot of people around him that are are needing to work. For livelihoods. And so I, for those reasons, I, I am willing to cut Glenn a lot more slack than other people. Again, partially because we have a relationship. But the only reason why Glenn had me on to talk about Smollett was because the story was appealing to Trump fans. Because this was a, a story that was perceived as anti-Trump that turns out to be a fraud. If this had somehow been in the opposite direction, and I had debunked correctly a story that made Trump look bad or look, made Trump supporters look bad, guess what? <laughs> I would never have been asked on Glenn Beck. Bill O'Reilly, former another Fox, former Fox News host, would never have had me on uh, his internet television show, which he did. Uh, other people like John Gibson, another uh, former Fox News pro-Trump host, never would have had me on. I did numerous interviews about this, but it was all based upon the premise that this is a story our audience likes. Why? Because it makes liberals look bad and it makes Trump uh, supporters look good and it vindicates Donald Trump in some ways, partially because it's fake news and it discredits the news media. And by the way, I've written... A column at Media, one of the four I wrote about the Smollett situation, indicating that this whole deal does, in fact, help Donald Trump politically, which is ironic because Donald Trump was one of those who was also duped by the story. Now, I'm going to give him a little bit uh, of slack because he's president of the United States and it appeared as if he was hit with a question about this before he knew all the facts. But usually his BS detector is pretty good. I'll give Trump that. He, he, he has a pretty good sense for these fake stories, although sometimes, you know, like when it comes to Barack Obama's birth certificate, not so much. But, but he jumped right on in on this and said, oh, this was horrible, terrible, outrageous. Uh, and then, to my knowledge, has never – well, actually, I, I think he's subsequently tweeted about it. And I know his son has. But the reality is his first reaction was almost, not quite, was almost as bad as a lot of the Democratic presidential candidates who jumped in on this as well. So I found that to be rather ironic. And when I was doing my interview with Bill O'Reilly and he was ripping into all the 
Democratic presidential candidates for believing this story. I so badly wanted to say, oh, by the way, Bill, your, your, your guy Trump did the same thing. I didn't do that, uh, mainly because the opportunity didn't really arise. I knew it would blow up the whole interview, and it just really wasn't worth it. Maybe I sold out. I don't know. I'm, not, I'm selling out for nothing when it comes to, to that uh, Bill O'Reilly interview because it doesn't, it doesn't, these things don't matter to me. I mean, it really doesn't matter. I do them because I want people to know what the truth is. And I am a big believer that the news media in the United States of America is badly broken, badly broken. And this story proved it once again. I think there are there is an epidemic of stories that are either totally or partially, if not mostly false, that are being portrayed as true. And this situation only blew up because the police in Chicago did a great job. If it hadn't been for the police in Chicago, and by the way, the, the, the hoax was terrible. It was a terrible hoax. So because of the, the hoax being terrible and the police doing a good job, it all blew up. I believe this is happening often, and it's not blowing up. And so I, I, the reason I bring this up is because this is the, a classic exception that proves the rule. The only reason why John Ziegler is allowed access to the to some of the uh, conservative state-run media airways is because the story I'm telling fits with their pro-Trump narrative. And that's that to me is sad because the conservative media that I grew up in was supposed to be more about telling the truth that the national mainstream liberal media was not going to tell you. Now it's only potential truths that the media won't tell you that are good for Trump. That's really what it's been limited to. And that's why I refer to them as state-run media. So if you haven't checked out episode number four yet, please do, because I go into the history of how this whole situation happened and how it is that so-called conservative media turned into pro-Trump state-run news media. Then in episode number five, we did our first interview uh, on the Individual One podcast with my good friend, Congressman John Yarmouth, a Democrat who is now the chairman of the House Budget Committee. I urge you to check out that interview. He is a very honest guy. We are very good friends from the days back in Louisville, Kentucky, where we co-hosted a television show together 16 years ago. And uh, what I love about John is that he will tell it like it is, although I think he's I think he's starting to get a little worried about that because now that he's the chairman of the House Budget Committee, as he said, people are starting to really pay attention to what he says. And so therefore he might have to you might have to draw in the reins a little bit when it comes to telling the truth. But by and large, uh, he told the truth in this interview about Trump and the wall negotiations. And w- of course, from a personal standpoint, what I was most interested in is that uh, that he acknowledged that I had finally convinced him that uh, that potentially impeaching Donald Trump was the right thing to do, if only for the purposes of maintaining impeachment as a viable uh, legislative weapon against an out-of-control president. Because if you don't impeach Donald Trump, then how in the world are you ever going to impeach anybody in the future? And that a future person who might be more, much more dangerous than Donald Trump, not a buffoon, a real tyrant, may do exactly the same things as Trump, only with far worse intent, but the precedent will already be set that you can't impeach him because you didn't impeach Trump. And he also indicated that there are a lot of Democrats in his caucus that are inching in that same direction towards that same conclusion. But I, I also challenged him about where it is that the Democratic Party is and how they might be playing into Trump's hands for re-election in 2020. And this is an issue I'm getting very concerned about. We talked about it on the podcast. And then afterwards that night, I called John up 
because I wanted to make sure he understood where I was coming from and how serious this issue is. And I knew he would understand where I was coming from, and he did. And I even came up with an analogy, which he enjoyed, and hopefully you will as well, to explain what's happened here with the Democratic takeover of the House of Representatives. Here's here's my rather simplistic, but I think uh, uh, effective metaphor, analogy, whatever you want to describe it as, to to be able to quantify what's really happened here with with the Democrats going loony. What effectively happened here was through the first two years of the Trump presidency, a lot of Americans, not in Trump's cult, but a lot of Americans decided, you know what, uh, this Trump is a cancer. Uh, and we need to at least contain this cancer, if not remove this cancer. And so because the Republican doctors, Dr. McConnell, uh, is clearly not going to, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is clearly not going to contain this cancer or remove it. And Paul Ryan, who was retiring, uh, no one on the Republican side in the House was going to do that. We hired a new doctor. Now, it's a doctor that, you know, a lot of uh, Americans are very wary of, Dr. Nancy Pelosi, who's now the, the Speaker of the House. So we, we were very hesitant about this, but, but we did this because, all right, it looks like we got cancer and we can't find a doctor that's willing to contain or potentially remove this. So Dr. Nancy Pelosi brings the patient in and they're on the operating table and we're like, okay, this is, this is not going to be fun uh, and, and we're a little wary of you, but, but we clearly have a problem here. We've got this cancer issue. Uh, what are you going to do about it, Doc? And all of a sudden, all the people uh, surrounding Dr. Pelosi, all of her assistants, start talking about, well, uh, we think the solution is a a sex change operation. Yeah, that's right. We're going to cut your balls off and uh, we're going to make you into a a woman and we're going to give you boobs and then we're going to change your face around. And we're we're on the operating table. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, what what are you talking about? What what are you talking about? You know what? Let me keep my balls and I'll take my chances with the cancer. That, that, that's where people like me, uh, and there are some people who are in this, this camp, uh, people who are more independent, who are conservative, who are not uh, Trump fans, who are like, okay, uh, wait a minute, you guys have gone uh, completely off the deep end already, uh, way too fast, and you're not talking about what it is that went and gave you the position in the first place. The reason why we brought you in was because of this Trump cancer. Contain it or deal with it. Don't be talking about sex change operations. And what I mean by that is the Green New Deal and, and uh, you know, liberal wackiness where 70 percent uh, tax rates and, and, and socialized medicine for all and scaring Amazon out of New York City. That stuff is not helpful. And that's what I, my message was to John. And he thought that was clever and he understood it. And I'm sure it will have no impact. Uh, but at least somebody in the Democratic caucus uh, might be able to talk some sense into some people. And if anyone can do it, uh, it's John Yarmouth. So uh, make sure you check out episode number five of the uh, Individual One podcast. Now, what I want to talk more specifically about today is the, the truth about Donald Trump's fake news. Because this is really important and it's pervading numerous news stories. And overriding all of this is the news out today that Robert Mueller's special counsel final report about the Russian investigation may be out in some form or fashion in the next couple of weeks. Now, I'm not sure I believe this because the story, uh, you know, there's something to it. I I will acknowledge that there's something to that. But uh, I, I don't believe that by next week, 
there's going to be a document that uh, that Americans are going to be able to read and say, oh, this is the final report. That, by the way, may never happen. And that I, it is my sense that this is going to be one of the many elements of the final Mueller report that are going to be very anticlimactic because it's not going to be like, remember, there was a star report that was had a narrative and all sorts of very salacious details about the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky, Paula Jones uh, perjury obstruction of justice investigation. It does not appear as if we're going to get that. And I certainly don't think we're going to get that within the next week or so. To me, what's going to happen here is this, we're going to get all sorts of leaks uh, that I believe that uh, Trump's new attorney general is going to try to curtail this under the guise of protecting people who are not indicted. Uh, Trump, because he's president, likely uh, cannot and, and will not be indicted. Therefore, he is inherently uh, theoretically protected. Uh, and then, of course, Democrats will get a hold of the information. They'll leak that out. I really don't believe we're going to get a full scope of this unless and until Robert Mueller testifies in front of Congress, which, of course, Democrats are going to want him to do. And I would presume he would want to do, but we don't know that for sure. So that's the it's clear that we're heading to the conclusion of this thing. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that there's a, a whole series of news stories. that are at least somewhat related about this. And Trump, of course, has been using his fake news canard in order to combat a lot of the allegations. Now, some of the allegations are coming from uh, Andrew McCabe. He is the former acting director of the FBI who took over after James Comey was fired. He did an interview this past Sunday on 60 Minutes. And by the way, speaking of the news media, it's amazing how fragmentation has played right into Donald Trump's hands. If if only a few years ago, a former acting director of the FBI had gone on 60 Minutes and made the charges that McCabe made against the sitting president, this would have been a monumental news story, earthquake, just massive story. And instead, uh, it, it was really fairly minor. Uh, now, part of that's because Trump has had a, a long time to discredit McCabe and has done so effectively. He got fired uh, by the FBI uh, the day before he was supposed to get his pension, uh, which was about as cruel as it gets and, and, I, and I'm vindictive and I believe on purpose uh, by the Trump administration. I am not convinced that that firing was legitimate. It, you know, it's amazing. Trump fans, <laughs> I find this hilarious. Trump fans apparently, get this, uh, based upon uh, the way Trump fans have reacted to McCabe, they take lying very seriously. Lying, which is why McCabe allegedly got fired, because he supposedly uh, perjured himself, although no one can tell me the exact lie he told. That's always interesting. <laughs> my, well, my reading is that the, it's rather vague as to what he was lying about, and really the substance of it wasn't all that important. It was about a leak uh, involving an investigation that uh, people thought made him look better, Okay, that's not good. Uh, I'm not sure that's a fireable offense. There are people who believe that he didn't do anything that was outside of the ordinary. But more importantly, I find it fascinating that both Trump and his fans are very adamant that lying is about the worst thing you can do as a public official. Believe me. I mean, that, that to me is hilarious. 
I mean, I mean, coming from Trump, it is, it is it's just flat out ridiculous. The idea that somehow a pathological liar can, with a straight face, say that you cannot believe anything that Andrew McCabe says because he was fired for lying. I mean, Donald Trump lies every single day, almost every single time he tweets, almost every single time. He makes a, a, a major public statement. There are numerous bald-faced... That's what he does. And so for him to try to say, well, he can't believe anything McCabe says because he was fired for lying uh, is absurd. I, I mean... You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? And th- speaking of things that are crazy and not true... The, the Trump fans, and Trump has, of course, supported this, this fake belief, uh, believe in this nonsensical, absurd theory involving McCabe and uh, Rob, Rob Rosenstein, the, the acting uh, uh, attorney general or deputy attorney general, that somehow this was a coup and that they were trying to get rid of Trump. And that this was part, this is the part that's so crazy that they, uh, they and Kellyanne Conway uh, a Trump administration spokesperson actually said this on CNN to Chris Cuomo last night, that the FBI was trying to defeat Trump throughout the campaign. And then once that failed, they wanted to try to get rid of him once he was in office. Now, this is, as Barkley would say, it's just flat out ridiculous. Thank you, Charles, because it doesn't make any sense on its face, because let's look at what the FBI did during the 2016 campaign. They said nothing about all the things that we now know, and they apparently knew, or at least thought they knew, about what was going on between Trump and Russia during the campaign. They said nothing about it. Not any leak at all. Nothing. Nothing. And, the, you know, the whole Steele, Christopher Steele dossier, which Trump rails on all the time, supposedly discredited it, although I don't believe it has been. It's not all been verified. Some of it's probably not true. But the essence of it has truth in it. But... How did the Steele dossier never get leaked? How did that never happen? I mean, the Hillary campaign supposedly paid for it, although I'm convinced Steele had no idea who, was, who he was working for at the time, and it started off with a, with a conservative outlet paying for that investigation. But, but how is it that that never got leaked during the campaign? How is it that the FBI never leaked anything about Trump and Russia? If they were out to get him, if this was some sort of uh, organizational effort to prevent Donald Trump from being president. And then, oh, by the way, uh, how do you explain that James Comey ends up 10 days before the election coming forward and needlessly reopening the Hillary Clinton investigation in a way that kills all of her momentum? The polls show, I believe, uh, that it probably gave... Donald Trump the election. I mean, you can make a very strong argument, many people have, that without Comey stepping forward 10 days before and reopening that investigation, which turned out to be for no reason at all, it was out of an abundance of butt covering. That's what James Comey did. That if that doesn't happen, then Trump loses, just like he thought he was going to lose, like everybody thought he was going to lose. So how, this, is the exa- this is an upside-down world theory. This makes no sense. Forget about whatever details you want to make up 
or text messages between lovers after the election uh, of, of, of fairly minor FBI figures. I mean, they, they can always latch on to some sort of red herring or cherry pick some sort of BS. But the reality is that it doesn't make sense in its totality. If it doesn't get the first base as a theory, you know what this reminds me of? And this is consistent with everything that Trump has done in his defense with regard to the Russian investigation. It reminds me of O.J. Simpson's defense. And I have written at Mediate about how there are a lot of similarities between the way that Trump has defended himself in the Russia probe and the way that O.J. Simpson successfully defended himself against the allegation of two people that he clearly and obviously murdered back in 1994 here in the Los Angeles area. But what O.J. Simpson did was you use the time from the time of the allegation to the time of the actual trial, which is a long period of time, and people's memories are bad and they get tired of, and, you know, it's just, it's just human nature. That, that time period is incredibly valuable because you got a window before the other side tells their story. Robert Mueller hasn't told his story and may never get a chance to really fully tell his story. So in that gap, Trump has successfully, at least with his base of support, at least with Colt 45, he has successfully attacked the prosecution. He has attacked the credibility of the people he knows he's most vulnerable to. And McCabe was one of them. And while there's no proof of it, and McCabe suspects it, and of course, he, he has a self-interest to suspect it, but I, I think there's logic to this. It certainly seems to me plausible that, uh, that McCabe was fired because someone knew that's what, well, they all, everyone knew that's what Trump wanted. Trump had tweeted that he wanted McCabe fired, but that this was done as a way to gain favor with the president of the United States by discrediting McCabe, by firing him over these lies that may have been untruths, but usually would never have been uh, adjudicated in this sort of fashion. That's what it feels like to me. And, and McCabe, of course, is only one of the elements of this O.J. Simpson defense. I mean, Trump has gone after Robert Mueller in a huge way, which is completely absurd. Like McCabe, lifelong Republican, lifelong Republican, and Robert Mueller, lifelong Republican, war hero, served in, uh, with great distinction in all sorts of huge positions in government for an incredibly long period of time. And somehow Mueller's on a witch hunt with 13 or whatever the number is today, angry Democrats working around him. How does that make any damn sense? That makes no sense at all. And, and getting back to McCabe, not making any sense. What, what is McCabe's uh, incentive? Once, once James Comey is fired, and McCabe takes over, and, and, and Trump tweeted uh, just uh, yesterday in very presidential fashion that McCabe never did anything, never went to the bathroom, including, uh, without being told to do so by leaking James Comey. The very, very presidential, to, to reference uh, not being allowed to go to the bathroom without a guy, I guess, who's I'm presuming he's implying that Comey uh, had uh, continence issues. Uh, and so uh, but that makes no sense right off the bat because the first thing that happens when Comey gets fired is what? McCabe takes his job. He, he doesn't 
He doesn't say, no, Mr. President, I am objecting to your firing of James Comey and for principal standpoint and because James Comey told me to and I can't do anything James Comey, who just got fired and is powerless, uh, has told me to do. I can't, I can't object to anything that he tells me to. I am not going to take the position of FBI director. So you're going to have to hire somebody else, which would have been very damaging to Trump, right? If McCabe had decided, I'm not taking the position, that would have told the world that the FBI does not agree with the decision to fire James Comey. But McCabe didn't do that. And let me tell you something else about where McCabe was. McCabe, lifelong FBI guy, it was shocking. It was a, it was a shocking series of, of circumstances that even allowed him to be acting FBI director. This has got to be a dream come true for him. He never imagined he would be acting FBI director for a Republican president. This is a dream. He's in the catbird seat. Why would he do anything to disrupt that unless he sincerely was concerned and had legitimate reason to be concerned that this counterintelligence investigation that was instituted because of the Comey firing was warranted because Trump was acting as if he was a Russian stooge. Now, that doesn't mean Trump is a Russian stooge. That means he had every reason to believe or fear or suspect that. And he had every personal incentive to not go down that path because he just got his dream job. And he knows Trump. He knew immediately that when he did this, that Trump was going to find out about it. Devin Nunez, it's very clear from the things that McCabe has said, the Republican congressman from California, who is you know, clearly as much of a Trump stooge as you can possibly get, obviously told him what was going on. And, and so McCabe knew he was signing his own death warrant. He knew that, and he did it anyway. Now, again, that doesn't mean he was right. But to inherently besmirch his, in, his intent is wrong. It's nonsensical. He'd have to be nuts. And, of course, Trump constantly lies about his wife being uh, on the payroll of Hillary Clinton. That's just not true. It's just not true. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? She never even met Hillary Clinton. Her campaign, which was over, she had lost. It was over by the time any of this was relevant. She got money from a political action committee run not by Hillary Clinton, but by Hillary Clinton's, I guess actually more Bill Clinton's friend, Terry McAuliffe who was the governor of Virginia at the time. This was a, a run for Virginia office. She's a, a Democrat. This is, this is normal politics. This is the way it works. And she lost. And then McCabe recused himself. There, there was nothing that was done untoward. But Trump understands his base. He understands how dumb they really are. I love the poorly educated. And so... If he keeps pounding on, oh, she took money from Hillary Clinton. It doesn't matter that it's not true because no one at Fox News Channel, other than maybe Shepard Smith, is going to take the time to explain. Um, hold on a second, folks. This is not true. This is not real. This is all bull crap. And so when Donald Trump uses fake news, fake news, fake news, that's actually a sign that what he's saying is true. All right. 
That's and I've done a study of this. I can't 100% prove it because there are exceptions to it this basic rule, but the basic rule is when Trump says something is fake news, that means it's more likely to be true. And interestingly, there are often stories that are not true about Donald Trump that he doesn't use fake news on. Now, that to me is fascinating and illuminating because what that means is that Trump views news stories kind of like uh, incoming uh, artillery. Okay, <laughs> he he's he's in his battle position and he, he fashions himself as a general. And if he sees uh, an attack coming, and he sees the story as dangerous, in other words, true and real, he'll attack it with fake news. But if he's if he sees an attack coming in that he knows to be harmless because it's not true, he will usually say nothing about it which I have always found to be interesting because you would think if a guy was really trying to make the argument about fake news, and, and he's, again, he has occasionally done this, but you would think he would attack the false stories with at least as much ferocity as he does the stories that appear to be true. But he doesn't do that because that's not the way he looks at this. But he has been very successful very successful because he's had a long time. See, he knew. He knew very early on after Mueller got hired and uh, to be the special counsel and he had fired James Comey that, that this was going to be big trouble for him. And much like O.J. Simpson, they knew they, they were in big trouble. They knew exactly where they needed to attack. And O.J. Simpson went after the police and specifically the policeman who found the, the bloody glove at his house, a guy by the name of Mark Furman, and... You know, O.J. got lucky that Furman gave him a whole bunch of uh, usable material that was totally irrelevant about him supposedly being a racist, even though I don't think he actually was. Very similar to the, the whole attack on the FBI here, the attack on Comey, the attack on McCabe, the, the attack on uh, Page and Struzik, is it the name? I forget, whatever their names are. All these, all these demons uh, within the FBI that the right-wing uh, supposedly conservative, now state-run media, have attacked now for over a year with no ability to really rebut. And by the time McCabe gets his rebuttal, well, he got fired. He's discredited and he's selling a book. So why should we believe anything that he has to say? So th this is a very effective tactic that Trump is using, but it makes no sense from a logical standpoint, as if logic matters at all. And another place where logic has no meaning at all, uh, comes from a, another tweet that Donald Trump sent today dealing with the, the Comey firing. And this has to do with something that Trey Gowdy, a guy who I used to respect, a conservative now former congressman, who uh, went on Fox News Channel and criticized the idea that somehow the firing of James Comey, which is at the heart of this whole thing, got to understand that the, the Comey firing, the firing of the FBI director, and how that is interpreted is key to understanding this entire concept of obstruction of justice against Donald Trump. And the key here is that is that potentially, is that act, firing Comey, potentially obstruction of justice? Well, Trump today tweeted an absolutely imbecilic statement by Gowdy on Fox News Channel that it is absurd to consider the firing of the FBI director to be obstruction of justice because all these Democrats wanted Comey to be fired as well. 
and that therefore, if they wanted him fired, the act of firing James Comey could not possibly be obstruction of justice. That's the that's I'm paraphrasing, but that's what Trump tweeted out. That's imbecilic. And let me tell you why that's imbecilic. First of all, it's hilarious that I, I guess now if Nancy Pelosi's in favor of something, that means that it's okay. That that means it's a good idea. That makes it legitimate. That's interesting to know because I, I thought conservatives hated Nancy Pelosi. But number but number two, and more importantly, is this: they're not the president of the United States. Their campaigns were not under investigation for potential uh, inappropriate contacts with Russia. Okay, they they, and most importantly, they as president did not tell the FBI director, James Comey, hey, can you go easy on Mike Flynn? And can I have your loyalty? See, this is the part that drives me crazy about the Comey firing. And I've even confronted Ken Starr, the special counsel in the Clinton impeachment case at the Reagan Library here in Southern California a few months ago. You can find that at, at YouTube if you're interested. I, I confronted Starr about this because he has said the same thing, that the firing of Comey is not obstruction of justice. Hold on a second. That It's not the firing. Of course the president has the right to fire his, his FBI director. But when he fires his FBI director after having told the FBI director to go easy on Mike Flynn over lying about his contact with the Russian ambassador and asks him for his personal loyalty... That firing changes the interpretation of those two statements to the FBI director. That becomes obstruction then, especially when the president then goes on national television, on NBC, and in an interview with Lester Holt the next day says, yep, I fired Comey over Russia. That becomes obstruction. It's not the firing. Use your freaking brains, people. It's not the actual firing. It's what the firing does to the context of the other things that Trump did before and after the firing. But they are banking on the fact that their base is... I love the poorly educated. And will not care, not figure this out. And it's too late. This is all too late. They, time is on their side because Trump has been president now for over two years. They think he's fighting for them. He thinks he's do, they think he's doing a great job, which is beyond comprehension to me. Uh, and and I, I, I cannot imagine that what Robert Mueller could possibly have, especially when Roger Stone hasn't even been convicted yet. And, you know, and who knows it, whether or not this new story involving the acting attorney general, Matt Whitaker, being directed by Trump. This was in the New York Times, which Trump referred to as fake news and the enemy of the people. Now the New York Times, the New York, the president of the United States today. Let's let's can, can we just put a wrap our minds around this? The president of the New York, uh, the president of the New York Times, the president of the United States declared publicly today that the New York Times is the enemy of the people. Now, I despise the New York Times. They are arrogant as hell, liberal as hell. They often get things wrong. But to call them the enemy of the people by the president of the United States is just beyond. It's just flat out ridiculous. And uh, it's wrong and it's damaging and it's and it's contradictory. It's hypocritical because I doubt there's an outlet other than maybe Fox News Channel to whom Donald Trump has given more interviews in the last couple of years than The New York Times. If they're the enemy of the people, why are you giving them so many interviews, Mr. President? But let's let's rewind. So The New York Times reported that. The acting attorney general, Matt Whitaker, 
was directed by Donald Trump, or depending on what word you want to use, and that's a key word, but he, it was Trump effectively asked slash told Matt Whitaker whether or not he could get the, the, the guy in charge of the Cohen investigation in the Southern District of New York could, could get the Trump crony who had recused himself from that investigation to unrecuse himself. And Trump called this fake news, and McWhinaker issued a non-denial denial, which certainly seemed to me as if it was confirmation of the story. I mean, when Trump's calling something fake news, and the guy at the center of it, Matt Whitaker, who doesn't have a whole lot of credibility himself, is giving this very parsed denial, that, to me, is a true story. That's, those are signs that this is a true story, and it certainly sounds like Trump. But it, here's where the problem comes in. Trump is not a complete imbecile. And I think Trump understands the concept of plausible deniability, and he's able to use his position as president. See, this is part of the context no one wants to fully grasp. When you're president, your actions take on a very different context. If you ask a friend subtly who you have no power over to do something over you, that's not, you know, you're you're not forcing them. You're asking them. When you're president of the United States and someone is been merely a, an acting attorney general appointed by you, right? So he, Trump feels like Whitaker owes him, and you're the president, and, and you suggest in any language that's remotely strong at all, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if we could get the guy in charge of the Cohen investigation, or should be in charge of the Cohen investigation, a buddy of ours, a crony of mine, to unrecuse himself? Could you get that done? When that's the president, that's an order or, or should be perceived as an order. And that's obstruction of justice or at least attempted obstruction of justice. Whitaker couldn't do it, but that doesn't matter. It's what the attempt is by the president. Now, how you prove something like that is exceedingly difficult because the parsing of words becomes incredibly important. And that's where the plausible deniability comes in. But it certainly fits a pattern. I believe we're going to find out that, that Trump effectively did the same thing with Michael Cohen when it came to his testimony regarding the Trump Tower Moscow project that Cohen pleaded guilty to lying about to Congress. Now, the BuzzFeed, you know, supposedly got disgraced because Mueller said their story about the suborning of Cohen's perjury was not true. I'm, I'm going to wait and see on that. I, I think there was still some truth to that. There just might not be 100% deadlock cinch proof of it. I mean, there's a big difference between something that appears to be true and something you can 100% prove. And, of course, you're never going to be able to prove it to Donald Trump's cult because they don't want it to be proven. They don't want it to be proven. That's the reality of this. Now, there was one thing that Trump tweeted, and he had a whole bunch of very crazy tweets today. That, um, and, frankly, and frankly, I mean, books could probably be written about just the tweets of Donald Trump today, or at least hours of a podcast. But he did tweet one thing regarding fake news that I think is important because there's some truth to it. Now, it's, it's all very manipulative, and it's all based upon the concept of what's good for him. He doesn't really care about the issue in general. But uh, he writes today in a tweet, The press has never been more dishonest than it is today. Stories are written that have absolutely no basis in fact. The writers don't even call asking for verification. They are totally out of control. Sadly, 
I kept many of them in business. In six years, they all go bust. Bust in capital letters, so it must be true. Exclamation point. Now, that's a fascinating tweet because there's actually some truth to it. And I do believe at the end of that tweet that Trump is on to something. That the media and Trump have this bizarre, symbiotic, codependent relationship where the mainstream media hates Trump, but they need him because he creates for them ratings and content. He makes their lives very easy. He is job security. And without him, can you imagine what's going to happen without Donald Trump to create content? We have become so desensitized now that stories, I mean, every single week there's a story about Trump that in any prior administration would be a three-month story that goes away in three hours because he's that much of a content creator, much of it in scandal and corruption. But without him, the news media is going to have to go back to normalcy and with their broken business model, I don't know how they survive. It's going to cost enormous jobs if and when Trump loses. And so they're going to have a bizarre self-interest in Trump winning re-election. Now, whether they will act on that, I don't know. But there's all sorts of ways they could do that and maintain their own plausible deniability. But there's a lot of them, even though they personally hate Trump, that need Trump to win, to keep their jobs because of the crisis in the media created by massive fragmentation and a broken business model. But, of course, Trump doesn't do this because he's against fake news. He's doing this because he knows it's good for him, because if no one believes, or at least within his base, believes what the media is telling, he will be safe. Don't believe your lying eyes. And a lot of this requires trust in the media. And that actually goes back to the whole Jesse Smollett situation. That's why the Jesse Smollett situation helps Trump, because it's one in a series of stories that, they, to conservatives for sure, are totally false, like the Covington Catholic uh, confrontation at the Lincoln Memorial a few weeks ago, the Brett Kavanaugh allegations in the Supreme Court nominating fight. Those were, in, in the minds of conservatives, and including myself, those were all fake stories that were designed because the liberal media despises Trump. They have a view of the world that's not accurate. They buy into allegations and stories that are clearly not true, partially out of their own gullibility. But that helps Trump because if you're not believing what the, the media, the fourth estate, is telling you, then you're never going to change your mind about the job that Trump's doing as long as the things that you can see and feel and touch and impact your life, like, for instance, the economy— as long as the economy's halfway decent, no one's going to change their minds. So unless the stock market collapses and or the economy uh, goes in the same direction in a way that actually impacts lives, there's nothing that the media can do. They're completely impotent now with at least 40% of the public. And that means whatever Mueller does is going to be perceived as having very little impact, especially when I think it's going to be overblown and and anticlimactic, having nothing to do with Trump's guilt or Mueller's uh, conclusions. I think Mueller's conclusions are going to be very devastating in a rational world to Donald Trump. But we don't live in that rational world, and Trump wins because of that. Trump needs us desensitized. He needs the fourth estate to be discredited. And he has been successful in doing both of those things. And uh, before we go, I want to mention at least one other story that, that it doesn't even didn't even rate 
at the top of the news this week, which in any other situation would have been huge. And that is, it's been reported that Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor to the president, was in favor of trying to give nuclear technology to the Saudis against American law, and that this effort may still be going on. Now, there's obviously been a lot of focus on Trump's relationship with Russia, but we have not focused enough on Trump's relationship with the Saudis. People forget, you know, Jamal Khashoggi, who was assassinated, the Washington Post columnist who was assassinated brutally uh, last year, where Trump went super soft on the Saudis. Did you know, because very few people are aware of this, and it's more coincidental, but I think it's emblematic of a larger truth. Did you know that when Trump bought his yacht back in the late 1980s, the Trump Princess, which made a huge amount of news at the time, and I know a lot about this because my father was the one who actually approved that loan for Khashoggi. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. The group proved the loan for Trump to buy the Trump Princess. But it wasn't the Trump Princess when he bought it. He bought it from Jamal Khashoggi's uncle. Now think about that. Again, I'm sure he has a lot of uncles because family trees in Saudi Arabia are awfully weird. Uh, But the reality is that one of Jamal Khashoggi's uncles was the arms dealer who sold Donald Trump his yacht. And then he sold it to another uh, member of the Saudi royal family. He's had Saudi ties from way, way, way back. And it's not a coincidence that we have a situation where Trump effectively turns the other way and allows the Saudi royal family to get away with assassinating uh, a, uh, a person who lived in America and who was writing for the Washington Post. I mean, <laughs> and again, this is minor news, minor news. And then you have the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and Vladimir Putin in that uh, super bro handshake at the summit a couple of months ago, like they were celebrating a, a joint custody agreement that they've come to over Donald Trump's balls. That, I mean, that's essentially what's going on here. And no one seems to care. And unless and until the economy collapses or there's a major international crisis that can be somehow blamed on uh, Donald Trump, I don't see much of anything uh, changing. So with that said, uh, I do want to uh, finish, as we always do on the Individual One podcast, with an update on our uh, two uh, predictive percentages. One is, does Donald Trump finish his first term in office? And the second is, is he reelected? I'm going to inch up, mainly because of that Matt Whitaker uh, news and the fact that Mueller's uh, report is coming uh, apparently very soon up from 9% to 10% that the uh, percentages of the chances of Donald Trump not finishing his first term in office. But I'm also going to tick up from 42% to 43% his reelection chances, partially because of the Jesse Smollett story furthering the narrative that the media is just completely uh, discredited and out to get Donald Trump at all costs, as well as uh, I am now starting to believe that it's possible that Joe Biden, the former vice president of the United States, who has the best chance of beating Donald Trump, may not run. That's an underlying may. But I, I have not great but decent information that it is possible he may not run because of concerns about his family. 
Uh, so uh, if that happens, if Biden does not run and that becomes official, that number will jump up significantly from 43 percent. But uh, there you have it for episode number six of the Individual One podcast. Once again, I ask you to uh, please subscribe to the show, rate it, review it, share it via social media. Make sure you check out our Twitter handle at Individual One Pod. Uh, My name is John Ziegler. We'll be back again on Sunday with episode number seven of the Individual Podcast. Uh, This is the Global Story Network.